first two months of 2014 have not been kind to the proponents of net neutrality. First, in January, a federal appeals court ruled that the FCC didn't have the power to require internet providers to treat all web traffic equally. Then, in February, a merger between two of the largest cable companies in the United States, Comcast and Time Warner Cable, increased the threat of decreased competition. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by Susan Crawford, the John A. Riley Visiting Professor in Intellectual Property at Harvard Law School and author of Captive Audience, The Telecom Industry and Monopoly Power in the New Gilded Age, just out in paperback this month. Professor Crawford, thanks for joining us. <laughs> thanks for having me. So let's start off broadly. Uh, obviously, everybody likes to be connected to the Internet. But why is broadband important? Well, this is the electricity of the 21st century. It's the basic infrastructure. And actually, I don't call it broadband. I call it high-speed Internet access because that's what we're interested in, the ability to introduce any new service on our own without asking permission, the ability to communicate with anybody around the world at scale, something mankind's never seen before. And just as electricity made possible much greater productivity and advances and technology and new kinds of jobs, new ways of making a living, same thing for high-speed Internet access. It's become the essential gateway to the 21st century. So up until now, uh, the general idea is you pay for you know, Comcast or some company to provide you Internet, and uh, that access gives you access to the entire Internet at all at the same speed. Um, but that seems to be what's under threat here, and that's what is kind of called net neutrality, correct? That's basically right. Uh, basically, 10 years ago, the federal government deregulated all of high-speed Internet access. The idea was that competition would protect Americans, protect new businesses, and would make sure that we'd have very fast speeds and world-class services. As it turns out, where consolidation is possible, competition is impossible. So net neutrality, this idea that you should be treating everything alike, is more a symptom of a broken competitive market than an issue that stands on its own. Because since 2002, we've seen enormous consolidation, and we've got a very few actors in America that pretty much control high-speed internet access. And they control both subscribers, the endpoints of the network, but they also control the manner in which content providers can get access to those subscribers. And like any sensible profit-making business, they'd like to create a two-sided market. They'd like to be able to raise prices on consumers and keep prices yeah, keep speed slow, if that's what makes sense for their own capital expenditures, and at the same time, raise the gates for Netflix, YouTube, any other high-capacity user trying to reach those subscribers from the other end. So the basic idea is, no, they should be just like the street grid. We should make this open, because that it actually pushes the private market along for all kinds of new uses of the Internet. But these actors have neither competition nor a cop on the beat telling them what to do, and they're able to act at will, to constrain, slice and dice, and choose winners and losers. That's the problem. If net neutrality is a symptom of a loss of competition, it seems like the rules that were struck down that were put in place in 2010 by the FCC uh, are kind of a uh, way to treat the symptom rather than treat the underlying cause. Um, is there a way to you know, actually address that that cause of the competition without, um, or perhaps in concert with FCC regulations? Well, absolutely. And in fact, uh, so you, you've said that the two, first two months of 2014 were rough for net neutrality. There's a bright light on the horizon 
because you have two choices when you're faced with a broken, uncompetitive market where there's a terminating monopoly like this one, a gatekeeper exerting control. One is trying to beat them up using words, mm -hmm. using regulation and oversight, trying to make them constrain themselves. But it's hard, just like you can't keep a little kid from an open cookie jar, it's hard for them to restrain their desire to make additional profits, not malign, just the way they act. Another road that could be followed is to encourage the building of alternative networks, fiber networks stretching across the country that the cable operators don't control. And just this week, the FCC announced that it's going to be looking into encouraging the building of those fiber networks across the country. They need some encouragement because in 19 states, the existing actors, the incumbents, have managed to get laws passed that make it difficult or impossible for cities to decide to build these municipal networks or enable private actors to build them on their own. The FCC is saying they are, will consider preempting those state laws to make it more possible for cities to act. What you're proposing, would that be more of, uh, you know, the government actually running the system or would it, you know, be helping private companies or uh, how exactly would it, would it work? The model here for me is Stockholm, which 20 years ago decided they didn't want to be stuck with their cable incumbent or their phone company. And they ripped up the streets just once to put in neutral infrastructure, just conduit with dark fiber, unlit fiber running through it. And that makes possible lots of retail-level competition. The city itself isn't selling services, but it's making possible a flourishing private market for Internet service providers. That same model could be followed in the United States in you know, different degrees. Chattanooga in the United States decided to just run its own network and own it. The city doesn't have to do that. There are 400 different cities in America that have decided to do this with different flavors of public-private mm -hmm. partnerships. So lots of ways to do it, but the essential point is not to be stuck, mm -hmm. not to have a single private actor choosing at what cost and you know under what conditions communications happen. You wouldn't want to turn your street grid over to a private actor. Right. Same thing here. Well, uh, just for the sake of argument, um, in a situation like Chattanooga's, uh, when you have the government running the running the system, wouldn't that force other private companies to leave the leave the area and, you know, um, perhaps increase prices through less competition there? I'm really not understanding that because the city has an incentive to keep prices as low as possible. It's not in the business of making money. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be providing this basic infrastructure, just like a street grid for mm -hmm. lots of actors. And in fact, what it does is drive the incumbent players in that market to lower their prices and do a better job of serving customers. And we see that over and over again. It's competition. It, mm -hmm. We went through this exact series of stories with electrification of America 100 years ago where the cities didn't have the option of doing this for themselves, individual private companies just controlled markets mm -hmm. and set prices. And it was a disaster for every other form of business. Great for them, but bad for other businesses. So putting in the street grid, enabling private actors to then provide retail services, makes it possible for all kinds of new jobs and new forms of making a living to show up in any given city. So uh, earlier you mentioned the monopoly status of some of the providers. Um, certainly, with uh, you know, how do, actually I just want to get a little bit of a glimpse of how that works. I mean, 
Uh, Comcast and Time Warner Cable, with their merger, they've been uh, saying that they're not. It's not monopolistic because all of them are in different markets, so they're not competing as it is. How? Do, what's what's the response <laughs> to that? It's almost funny that they can use that argument. In 1997, the cable companies in America divided up their systems. They called it the summer of love. They swap systems so that they can control complete markets. Mm -hmm. So of course they don't overlap in zip codes. They agreed never to enter each other's territories. Where you sit in your living room, you're facing a single actor. Like here in Cambridge, the only choice is Comcast. They're a monopoly provider here. Also, because Comcast and Time Warner together are going to be so large, 33 million subscribers, two-thirds of American homes will be passed by this entity, a third of all high-speed internet access subscriptions. It's really, it's mammoth, because they're so big, they'll be able to get lower prices for programming, pay TV services, than any other provider in the country. Mm -hmm. And because all Americans, 91%, get both if they are subscribing to high-speed internet access, they also pay for pay TV. This is a huge advantage for Comcast to keep competition at a distance. If it's getting its bundle at a lower price, it can make sure that competition never arrives in this infrastructure market to take market share. So at this point, the FCC's, or at least their initial attempt at regulation has been shut down. But that's not the end of the story. Certainly, they've uh, explored the possibility of labeling these companies common carriers. Is that feasible? Well, actually, the, we're sort of in the middle of the story, because mm -hmm. 10 years ago, administratively, the FCC decided to put high-speed internet access under a different label to call it an information service rather than a telecommunication service. They could, at any time, change that label. That power remains. They should have done this back in 2010 to make sure that their open internet rules, uh, providing for non-discrimination, were on a solid legal footing. They didn't want to because of the political firestorm that would have emerged had they done it then. So they sort of tried to put it under a different form of authority. The D.C. Circuit, circuit knocked that down initially. And then they've come back again. This, this will be the third time that the FCC is trying to regulate with one hand by calling for these non-discrimination rules while deregulating with the other. So they're on very unsure legal footing, mm -hmm. and uh, they'll do their best, but it's a real house of cards, and now it's fallen twice. They'll, um, they're talking about uh, finding other ways to encourage the deployment of advanced networks. One of the ways to do this is by getting rid of these state laws that get in the way of cities. It's actually funny that you mentioned House of Cards, because mm -hmm. it seems like one of the biggest uh, players in this whole uh, drama is Netflix. During peak hours of internet usage in North America, Netflix takes up something around a third of all traffic. Um, and they've been in, uh, in the news lately because um, they've been citing uh, uh, speed or speed drops among uh, Comcast and Verizon. That has a lot to do with these peering relationships between uh, companies basically allowing Netflix to hook straight into the servers of, of you know, Comcast and Verizon. Now, net neutrality seems to affect the, you know, the greater internet, but does it affect those kinds of peering relationships, or is that something that is more uh, forced by the lack of competition? Well, we're munging together a few issues here. Net neutrality, as we currently use the phrase, is basically applied to the last mile, what consumers right. get to do using their connections. 
Imagine that the consumer in this story is in New York City. There's a bridge called the George Washington Bridge between New York City and Fort Lee, New Jersey. Netflix is on the other side of that bridge trying to get to its trying to get to subscribers. The bridge is controlled by Comcast or Time Warner Cable. Somebody is moving the traffic cones in between the citizens of Fort Lee, New Jersey, the George Washington Bridge, and the citizens of New York. And there is no authority right now vested, or let's put it this way, the FCC has not yet exerted authority over that connection between the other end of the George Washington Bridge and Fort Lee because they've been relying on competition to provide lots of connections into subscribers. Now that Comcast and Time Warner Cable are getting so big, they can just squeeze that connection at the other side just by deciding not to increase capacity. They can keep those gateways narrow. It's not in their business interest to make them wider. That makes Netflix suffer. So the question is, is the FCC going to do anything about interconnection between Fort Lee and the George Washington Bridge. Right now, it's an open question. The open internet rules themselves, adopted in 2010, don't speak to this question at all. And the FCC needs to do a lot more fact-gathering to make sure what it should do. So what do you expect to happen in at least the near future with, you know, the development of, you know, more competition? Uh, do you think the Comcast mer- Time Warner Cable merger is going to go through? And if it does, you know, what, what's what's going to happen? Well, the merger really just takes a terrible situation and makes it a little bit worse. Um, so far, no cable merger has been turned down by the federal government. And Comcast, it's widely reported, has extensive political contacts. They sort of have man-on-man defense. They're able to touch everybody on the Hill and every possible regulator and smooth away with a variety of non-corrupt but very powerful donations. Um so it looks, most of the consensus view seems to be that it'll go through. I, I we're hoping that competition emerges through these municipal networks. Look, we've got a terrible problem. The bottom line is that for at least 77% of Americans, their only choice for a high-speed internet access, high-capacity connection, is their local cable monopoly. And prices are extraordinarily high. In New York City, I pay four times as much as someone does in Stockholm for a connection that's 17 times slower. So, you know, on the international stage, it really is pretty embarrassing how bad things are in the the country. Just as it did for electrification, it'll take genuine national, federal-level leadership to change this story. So far, we don't see a lot of appetite in Washington to change the trajectory, and that's a disaster for the country. Well, Professor Susan Crawford, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. PolicyCast.